Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? It is a truth universally acknowledged that we need to decarbonise the global economy and fast. An increase of 1.5 degrees on 1990s level would be risky. An increase of 2.5 degrees, let alone more, would be a catastrophe. We need, in short, to go green. So far, so straightforward. The problem is that going green isn't straightforward. Not just in the sense of it being highly disruptive, but because it is also morally complex. Take cars, for example. The solution appears to be simple. Get petrol and diesel cars off the road and replace them with electric vehicles, EVs. Except for the fact that electric vehicles are not made of mist. There's a lot of stuff that goes into them. And much of that stuff is deep in the ground and or in some pretty inaccessible or dangerous or beautiful or fragile places. In short, the swerve away from fossil fuels that is necessary if we are to go green may, if we're not careful, send us trampling over some rather precious territory. There are risks here as well as rewards. But what are the risks? What are we actually looking for? Where is it? Who owns it? And what are the consequences of digging it out of the ground? Henry Sanderson is a journalist and author with a particular expertise in the geopolitics of the global energy transition. And his new book, Vault Rush, explores, in the words of its subtitle, the winners and losers in the race to go green. Henry, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you for having me. I learnt many interesting things from your book, but one of the most surprising was how old the idea of the electric car was. You say that in 1900, petrol cars accounted for just 22% of the vehicles in the US, whereas electric ones made up 38%. What happened? Yes, it's a fascinating what-if moment of history, where in the early 1900s, we saw you know electric vehicles, steam vehicles and, and gasoline all competing for market share. And it got extremely, extremely close. If you look at the real price in 1900 of EVs, they were very close to gasoline at that time. If you look at the number of models, it was actually close at that time. And you had people like Thomas Edison. We all know of him as inventing the light bulb, but we should think of him uh, for batteries as well, because he spent many years and millions of his own money trying to invent a better battery. And him and Henry Ford actually worked on a prototype of an electric vehicle. And there was so much hype at the time. It's interesting going back to read about the promise of a better battery. And, um, you know, Edison and Ford were quoted in the New York Times saying, if we improve battery technology, we'll sweep away the horse from the city streets. (laughs) And in a way, the hype over batteries disappointed the public because the battery never lived up to the promised potential. And these are lead-acid batteries, is that right? 
That's right. Although Edison was trying to work on a new battery chemistry, nickel iron batteries, and he even used a bit of lithium, which is fascinating. Mm. But what happened is the batteries just didn't deliver on their promise. And many of them were, were leaky. But Edison was just too late by the time he finally got it sorted. But the other issue was the grid wasn't developed properly enough. And so one academic study said if the grid was developed 10 years earlier, maybe EVs would have taken mm. off. But it's one of those moments where we could have seen EVs for inner city travel, but what's interesting is gasoline just swept all before it. And presumably petrol became cheaper, which made the gasoline yes. vehicle more economically viable. Yes, that's right. And there was a point where gasoline got cheaper. So when did the pendulum begin to swing back for EVs for electric vehicles in the 20th century? In the 60s, you know, Ford Motor worked on an electric vehicle at that time. But again, the battery technology was the limiting problem. But then in the 1970s, you had so much interest in clean energy and you had companies like Exxon, the oil company. Not only do we know now they were working on climate change and they, they were pretty accurate in their forecasts, but they're also uh, working on solar cells and batteries as well. In the 70s, there was this huge push to renewables because of the, the OPEC oil embargo. So it's a really interesting decade and you had public consciousness about resources running out, about the need to switch away from fossil fuels. But by the 80s, when oil prices had fallen, all that was forgotten, pretty much until the 90s, when the lithium-ion battery was commercialized. People didn't think of it for EVs originally, it was more for consumer electronics. Mm. And it, it enabled camcorders, things like that, but then smartphones. So it really enabled the consumer electronic revolution. So it's remarkable, isn't it? There were two roads not taken there, and that right at the early part of the 20th century in the 1970s, and finally, decades later, we're rejoining them, as it were. Yeah, in the 90s, GM produced an electric vehicle in the US, the EV1, and quite a few people liked these vehicles, and you know they were quite popular amongst celebrities. But GM recalled all of these vehicles and took them back off their owners. And uh, there's a famous documentary who killed the electric car about this moment in time. So mm. to your point, there have been so many false starts that it's quite remarkable that now we're firmly on the, on the way to yes. mass market EV ownership. Yeah. So that's a little bit of our context and background. What fascinated me is that there's a, in a sense, there's a simple idea at the heart of your book, but one that's critically important and really not very widely recognised. You say early on, digital technologies give us a sense that we live in an ethereal economy, untethered, to the material world. But that's emphatically not the case, is it? No, that's the thing I feel so strongly about is that we've become quite divorced, especially in the West, from the supply chains that underpin these cheap consumer goods. And if you think of an iPhone or smartphone, there are loads of minerals in there and they all have quite complicated supply chains. And I think we've just taken for granted that someone somewhere else will dig up these minerals, someone somewhere else will process these minerals and Globalization has created these very complex supply chains, but at the same time, it's hidden a lot of the cost. And this is the CO2 cost, but also the human suffering that's involved or labor practices, etc. And this Canadian academic I, I really like uses this phrase, the ecological shadows that are sort of spread around the world by these supply chains. And, and what's so good about clean energy and the transition to clean energy is we need to clean up these supply chains. You can't have a dirty supply chain for a green product. So this is the impetus for my book, because this offers actually real real hope, because people start to question the supply chain behind your electric car. If there's child labor in the supply chain, people are not going to be so happy. Whereas with a smartphone, no one seemed to care at all, or very few people cared. 
because they didn't know a lot of the time. You don't know that the stuff in your phone that allows you to have these quote-unquote virtual relationships with people is very physical. It has to come from somewhere. Precisely. And I think part of the reason is mines are in very remote locations often. We don't decide where the minerals are found. But also China, from the 90s onwards, took a lot of these supply chains and took a lot of the, the business. And I think the West was just very, very happy to offshore a lot of this business. And so in some sense, developed behind the invisible cloak of China. And it was very cheap because of coal-fired power. Yes. Well, we're definitely going to come on to talk about China in a minute and also about the location of these minerals. A lot of the time they're called, or people will be familiar with the phrase, rare earth metals or rare earth elements. But it's a slightly misleading phrase, isn't it? Yeah, so, so we do have to clarify things a bit here. We have the um, rare earths, as you say, but they're mostly used in the electric motor in the vehicle. Whereas what I write my book about is the, the minerals in, in the battery. They're technically not called rare earths. You know, so you've got things like copper, which is an industrial metal, but lithium is a metal. It's just that before the EV, there wasn't a huge amount of uses for lithium or the market wasn't very big. It was basically a mood stabiliser, wasn't it, primarily before? Yeah, and, and used in things like glass and ceramics. You have nickel, which is used in stainless steel, and you have cobalt, which has always been used in lithium-ion batteries and in smartphones, consumer electronics. So those are the minerals I focus on. But you're right, separately you have the rare earths that are used in wind turbines and the motor and the electric vehicle. That's helpful because people will be very familiar with the phrase rare earth elements or metals. They are important for this emerging sector, but they're not the ones that you've been writing about. Let's look at those ones. Yeah. You focus on lithium, cobalt, nickel and copper. But rather than take each element in turn, as it were, I want to look at themes that emerge from your discussion. And the first one is volume. You cite in a footnote at one point the, the claim from American analysts that, quote, for every 1% you want to grow GDP, you must increase mined volumes by 2%. If you think about it, that's pretty terrifying, isn't it? I think that's right. We've been mining more minerals than before because of economic growth. China has been very mineral and metal intensive in terms of building housing, construction, so these economies, as they develop, require a lot of these metals. But obviously, as you get more developed, like the US or the UK, mineral intensity goes down quite a bit. But with clean energy, we're going to see that go up because wind turbines need a lot of copper to electrify the grid, expand the grid. And then all these batteries that we need for electric vehicles, then you also need batteries to store renewable energy to help with the intermittency of renewable energy. So yep. We need a huge amount of new minerals and materials to build the clean energy infrastructure. So while, let's say, China might be getting less mineral intensive on the traditional sectors like housing, clean energy is going to add an additional layer of consumption. You say at one point, analysts predicted that each of the one billion cars currently on the road were to be replaced with a Tesla Model X. Demand for cobalt would equal 14 million tonnes which is twice the size of the current global reserve. So I guess there's one pretty basic question here, which is, do we have enough of this stuff for this green revolution? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question because, you know, again, going back to the 70s, people worried we'd run out of this mineral, that mineral, or oil and uh, gas. And what history shows is that as prices get higher, humans are very innovative, right? We find new deposits of minerals and, and, and metals. So I think it's a very difficult thing to say we're going to run out of minerals because people have been proven wrong time and again. And if the price is high enough, if there's enough money, people will find new deposits. And lithium, for instance, is quite abundant in the Earth's crust. So there probably is enough there. But if you look at things like copper, 
it is actually getting more and more difficult to find deposits because mm. we've mined all the easy stuff first. It gets more and more difficult. You need more energy and you create more waste. So mm. there are issues. The minerals are there, but it's the cost we're willing to bear mm. to extract them. So especially if we're decarbonizing, we don't want to expend additional CO2 trying to get minerals. There is a, a strange parallel in this with regard to oil, isn't there? I'm struck by the way in which peak oil has been forecast yeah. time and time and time and time yes. again, and it's always been pushed back and it's always been pushed back. And the predictions ignore that basic fact that you alluded to there, which is basically the more the stuff costs, the more of it yeah. there is, because you know yeah. it makes it more economical to get at it. Precisely, yeah. And there's a chapter in my book about deep sea mining. Yeah, that's a classic example of people trying to extract deposits that people never thought about or didn't think were realistic. And that's an example, you know, the price gets high enough, the demand gets high enough, people look different mm. areas. Mm. So that's the volume, but you touched on carbon efficiency in your answer then. There's a lovely phrase from one of your interviewees in the book of carbon whack-a-mole. <laughs> Tell us wh why <laughs> we're all in danger of playing a massive global game of carbon whack-a-mole. As I said at the beginning, it's about scale. We need to mass produce these clean energy technologies very fast and at real scale. And what happens is that a lot of the supply chain is very carbon intensive and a lot of the processing happens in China, which is obviously a coal-fired grid. So you use more carbon to produce an electric vehicle than you do a petrol vehicle. And that's because of wow. the supply chain to build the batteries. Obviously, once you have the EV, you're not emitting any CO2. So the benefits are huge once you've actually built the vehicle and the battery. And especially if you're charging with a cleaner grid. The problem in China has been you're using a lot of coal to produce the EV, and then you're charging it using coal-fired power. So we need to see not only supply chain clean up, but the grid clean up. The UK has actually done a pretty good job of this. And uh, recent weeks, wind power is about 80% of the UK grid. Mm. So if I'm charging my electric vehicle using 80% wind power, and I'm not emitting any CO2, you pay back the CO2 that's used to make it relatively quickly. But the problem is that we're trying to replace all the petrol cars. So we need to increase production of new electric vehicles a lot. So you're expending a lot of carbon to mm. build all these new batteries. So if you think battery production this year will be about one terawatt hours, but by 2030, we need to get to three terawatt hours. So yes. each of those batteries takes a lot of energy to make. So we need yes. to clean up the supply chain. It is worth emphasizing that nothing of the conversation that we're having is in any way suggesting that there isn't the real desperate need to move away from our heavily oil-based economies. Picking apart the simplistic myth that doing so is straightforward and is, uh, is, a, is an unambiguous process of decarbonization, it's not quite as simple as that. Yes, I think that's the point I tried to make in my book is that a lot of people portray the clean energy revolution as very simple and that you just put up a solar panel or wind turbine. As a consumer, you just go out and buy an EV, but it's not that simple. The geopolitics are also interesting, which is that, okay, we could just import all our EVs from China, all our solar panels and wind farms, but we're also not getting the jobs that come with the clean energy mm. revolution. So we want economic growth that comes with the clean energy revolution, because that's the way you, you get political buy-in and consumer buy-in. If people can see Absolutely. the economic benefits as well, that's the way to succeed. And it's worth noting that you and I are having this conversation three or four days after the announcement yes. of a huge battery gigafactory in the Northeast looks like it's not going to happen. 
Yes, I think that's an incredibly sad story, but also it shows the difficulties of trying to, to build batteries and clean energy from scratch. Trying to compete with China at this stage is, is very, very difficult. And I think it's going to take a lot of government subsidy and a lot of government support. And that's what we're seeing in the US now. They've unveiled massive subsidies for clean energy. Yes, I mean, you do talk about this in the book, which is another one of my headings here, geopolitics, the extent to which China has actively worked to protect its own market when it comes to EVs. You mentioned at one point between 2009 2017, the Chinese government spent an estimated $60 billion on subsidies for e-vehicle manufacturing. So they're way ahead of us on the curve, aren't they? They really are. Even in 2010, Lord Mandelson was saying the UK is going to lead the world in electric vehicles. Boris Johnson said that in, in 2019. And even if you look at the US, Obama really wanted to stimulate clean energy manufacturing in the US after the financial crisis. But unfortunately, a lot of the US companies went bankrupt and Chinese companies actually bought those companies. So it's uh, adding insult to injury. Yeah, so I think probably at that time is when China really accelerated, you know, 2008, 2009, after the financial crisis, which was when I was living in China, actually. But it has been quite brutal also for China. It's not that every company has survived. A lot of solar companies went bankrupt in China, for example. And while there has been these huge subsidies, it is still an incredibly competitive domestic market. And uh, it's not easy to survive. So the global market in electric vehicles is part of this huge geopolitical tilt towards the East, isn't it? I mean, it's if yep. you know, America's hegemony in the 20th century is kind of almost symbolized by the car and by politics around oil, we can expect the 21st century perhaps to be symbolized around, uh, around lithium, around electric vehicles and around the role that China has. I think that's right. China now sees the EV industry as a way to boost economic growth and dominate future technologies. China struggled to produce decent petrol cars. It never really came up with a successful brand um, that could produce decent cars. It was just too far behind Germany and the US. But now with EVs, China's really on the front foot. Exports of EVs doubled last year. And total automotives, China has surpassed Germany as the second biggest exporter of vehicles. So wow. huge. Yeah, but you're exactly right. This is a, a key strategic technology that they see as helping to deliver high value jobs for their economy and really put them on the forefront of what is going to be a massive industry. Let's travel a little bit further up the supply chain because when you get to where the stuff is and how it gets out of the ground and who is responsible for it, it gets a bit messy. China, you say, doesn't possess very many of these particular metals that are essential to this, but they have made huge investments in countries that do. Just by way of introduction, where is this stuff around the world? Yeah, so it's a quirk of geology that you have in Africa, this cobalt copper belt that stretches from Democratic Republic of Congo into Zambia. And that's where we find most of the world's economic cobalt. And DRC last year produced over 70%. There's also copper there as well. And then if you look at things like lithium, Chile is a big producer. The lithium lies in these underneath these salt flats. And then Australia is a, a big lithium producer as well. But again, as I said earlier, lithium is abundant, so it's in lots of countries. Mm. Nickel is becoming quite concentrated because Indonesia has the world's largest reserves. 
And Indonesia is set to be the biggest producer this decade of nickel for electric vehicle batteries. And then you've got manganese. South Africa is a big producer of manganese, but over 90% is processed in, in China. And then graphite, that's mostly China, a bit of Mozambique and, and Madagascar. So all spread around the world. But what's key to remember is that no matter where these minerals are, they all get sent on a ship to China where they're processed and turned into battery materials that go in your EV. So would it not be cheaper to process the minerals in situ and ship over vastly less in terms yes. of bulk weight? Yes, and that's what's happening in Australia. What Australia is doing is building lithium processing in Australia. Because at the moment, Australia is shipping rock with only about 6% lithium in it to China. So it's very wasteful from a carbon point of view. But what's so difficult about that is it's very hard to compete with China. They've really mastered the art of building industrial facilities, these processing facilities. They require a lot of energy. They require a lot of acid. So when the West thinks of reshoring these supply chains, it's quite a big task because we need to be cost competitive. Yeah, yeah. And presumably building huge processing factories from scratch in places like Chile or the DRC or Indonesia is I mean, enormously complex and actually yeah. quite risky, certainly in places where the political climate is itself a bit unstable. That's true. And, and also what you have in China is the clustering effect. Because China has so much manufacturing, you have suppliers of acid down the road or you have the labor force. So because everything's clustered in China, they obviously have developed a lot of these supply chains. The issue about building it in Chile or other places is you're far away also from the automotive production. Yes. Whereas because China has everything in the country, it works very well. Mm. In a previous series, we spoke to Stefan Durkin, who is a development economist in Oxford, about his book, Gambling on Development. And part of our conversation talked about the resource curse, about how some countries are very, very poor, despite the fact that they have extraordinary natural resources. And supreme amongst them is Democratic Republic of Congo, isn't it? Tell us what impact this has had on DRC. You know, it is obviously um, a sad story that despite all DRC's resource wealth, when you go there, you can see pretty clearly that um, the wealth hasn't trickled down to those who need it. And part of the problem is the taxes that the mining companies pay go to the capital or there's corruption in the system. Or you have international mining companies who try to avoid paying any tax, saying they're not making a profit. Often you have a poor country facing big international mining company with top lawyers. So mm. who's going to win in that arrangement? Or you have the Chinese coming in with the power of the state implicitly behind them. So I think the DRC has struggled. But in the case of some of these battery minerals, like DRC is so dominant in cobalt. So it should be able to use that leverage to strike a better deal. And what we're seeing now is that it is trying to look at the contracts with the Chinese companies and try to renegotiate them. But it's always a bit of a nasty fight. So it is a sad story. I don't know the solution. I, you know, I'd love to listen to that podcast actually and hear more about it. But we've seen countries like Indonesia, they banned exports of raw nickel. And they said, if you want the nickel, you have to come here and build the processing in Indonesia. And that's what the Chinese have done there. They built massive industrial parks in Indonesia uh, with processing facilities. And now Indonesia is saying, 
okay, if you want the nickel, you've got to build a battery plant in Indonesia, and they want to build EVs in Indonesia. So I think that's a really successful case of a developing country saying, we've got the resources, we're not just going to export raw nickel to someone else, we want the value in the country. It's been incredibly successful. The downside is the processing's moved to a country where coal is the main power source, right? So the downside is the, the carbon emissions side. And Ideally, we should have the processing in places with clean energy. That would be the best. Yes. There's also one other fascinating dimension to this relationship, which is the strings that become attached between countries when there's significant investment. So if you are a Western mining company and you're working in DRC, you can guarantee there will be development and international aid charities and anti-corruption charities who will be crawling over your activity. Yes. Whereas China, let's be honest, doesn't have quite the same level of scrutiny. You mentioned at one point Joseph Kabila in in DRC wants to marshal plan effort to rebuild his broken country and Chinese money didn't come with any lectures. In some way, that's a more attractive option to these countries, isn't it? Chinese money is plentiful and no one's going to be telling you how you should run your country or collect your taxes or organize your domestic arrangements. Yeah, it's exactly right. That is the case. But um, I think what these countries are finding now is that debts are coming due in a lot of developing countries. And that's becoming a tricky situation. They have to negotiate with China. I think China's going to potentially lose some of that money. China lent billions to Venezuela, for instance, and um, that didn't work out so well. So I think on the Chinese side, a lot of the lending hasn't been ideal. But I think developing countries now, you know, from a geopolitical point of view, they want all their eggs in one basket and probably want to diversify a bit. And I think that's why we see the DRC willing to engage more with the US. But you're right, the attraction is that China doesn't require a lot of conditions. But then if you can't pay the debts, as we're seeing now, then it's interesting to see how it gets resolved. Yes. As an aside, this whole issue does fascinate me in as far as, you know, the East India Company never set out to rule India. They set out to invest in it, but they just got drawn in and just to protect their own investments, somewhere between 1757 and 1801, they ended up running the country. China, I'm sure, doesn't intend to run any of the countries in which it has invested, but it's going to face similar kind of questions in the 21st century if countries renege on deals and fail to repay debts. Precisely. You know, China has this narrative that they're a developing country, a multipolar world, and and, and they uh, can work with other developing countries. But you're right. You know, if the relationship goes sour, how does China react? Mm. Let's move to a conclusion and a positive conclusion because we have in our conversation emphasised some of the challenges and problems that there are around this very important, indeed necessary shift in, in the global economy. You talk about the necessity of whilst we are shifting the global economy in this direction to reduce, reuse, recycle, to close the loop. And there is a delightful irony in this in that you say that around 90% of steel in cars today is recycled. Over 90% of lead-acid batteries are recycled. Over three quarters of more than the 1.4 billion tonnes of aluminium ever produced are still in productive use. So actually, there is, in the current economy, quite a lot of reusage already going on. And that has to be maintained, doesn't it, for the future, irrespective of whatever direction we head in. Yes, so, so that's the point, which is that eventually... By 2050, we can reach more of a closed loop state. I'm optimistic it would be earlier than that. Probably 2040, we'll see much more recycling. And that's the beauty of 
clean energy technologies over fossil fuels is these metals can, can be reused endlessly. Mm. And if you think of uh, materials in the battery, they can be recycled. It takes energy to recycle and it's not 100% recovery, but it can be pretty good. So, so eventually we can move to more of a closed loop system. Is there much attention being paid to that now? Yeah, huge attention. There's a lot of investment going into recycling because people can already see the issue. You know, if you recycle batteries, you're less reliant on China and, and some of these countries. So if you can build recycling facilities, you can have the material right there. And obviously, I think automotive companies are all pledging to be more environmentally friendly. The more recycled material they can use, I think it's good for them from a marketing point of view. But the problem is this decade, we're seeing this huge increase in demand for EVs and the supply can't keep up. And we're not going to see a lot of these batteries come back till 10, 15 years later. Most people don't drive that far, right, on average. So most electric vehicle batteries will last a long time. Mm. So presumably there's a lot of money to be made by someone in the future who doesn't so much set up in the Northeast a battery production factory, but sets up a battery recycling facility. Yeah, I'm not sure about a lot of money, but there's definitely um, a market opportunity for sure. You know, this business is tricky because if you build a recycling facility, you need to make sure you get hold of the material to recycle. So you're quite dependent on your feedstock, what's coming in. Yes. So that's the issue for recycling companies. And that's why we're seeing automotive companies tie up with recycling so that they can give the recycling company they use batteries, etc. Mm. We had Hamish McRae on the program a few series ago talking about his new book, The World in 2050. Um, it would yeah. be completely unfair of me to ask you what you think this particular bit of the world is going to look like in 2050, but I'm, I'm going to do so anyway, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Let's project forward 25 years or so. Do you have any idea of what, what we've been talking about looks like? Yeah, so I think by 2050, as I said, I'm more hopeful that we'll have a, a closed-loop system. Most countries will rely on clean energy, so energy should be cheaper. Um, they should be less dependent on, on, on other places. And I think what we're going to see is a lot more interconnectors. So power can be transferred from country to country. So the clean energy can be moved around the world and around regions more easily. So solar power from Spain could be sent around Europe. And it's already happening. That might create its own geopolitical um, yes. issues. Let's wait and see. The book is called Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. Henry Sanderson, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you so much. Next week, I'll be speaking to the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, Paul Johnson, on how much Britain costs. You can understand the pressures on politicians who end up doing, in my view, the wrong thing, whether that be on tax or planning or infrastructure or trade or what have you, because the immediate pressures are much more obvious than the long-term gains. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. 